future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, 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 welcome, welcome. Yes, it is another Monday night. That means it's another Raging Chicken Out to Coop Live. Yes, it is Monday, March 28th, 2022. We are almost into April. It's amazing. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, of course, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can also check out our once or twice monthly The Wednesday Show with Cyril Michalako. Cyril is a progressive columnist for the Bucks County Courier-Times and the Intelligencer, and the newly appointed editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon. Congratulations to Cyril. Well, you can join us and we do drill down into the Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. And you can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbeans, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, leave us a review. Give us that five-star review. Leave a little comment. It really helps other people find the show. You can help support the show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. And you can also help out the show. Won't cost you a dime by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. You can also jump on and uh, join our little Discord, growing Discord community. Info on that is in tonight's show notes. And for more PA-based progressive talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. Rick is going to be there. Go to ricksmithshow.com for the latest of, across all his platforms. And of course, the must-listen season two of the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is flooding the streams. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Yes, make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And check them out wherever you get your podcast. And attention all you gamers out there, The Game Inn, that's with two N's, The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s to the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, you name it. Like, literally, a wall of Funko Pops, I kid you not. And kids get discounts when they get all A's in the report card. How can you beat that? Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout-out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at SongAdayMan, again with two N's. That's at SongAdayMan on Twitter. Well, everybody, I'm really thrilled tonight um, to be welcoming Jessica Corbett to the show. Jessica is a staff writer at CommonDreams.org, and we're going to be talking about two of her most recent articles focusing on the fossil fuel links to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yes, indeed. And, of course, Biden's problematic LNG, liquefied natural gas plan, to ease European energy needs in the wake of the conflict. As she quotes uh, Kelly Sheehan of the Sierra Club um, from this past Wednesday, quote, allowing for the expansion of new and expanded pipelines and gas export facilities, which wouldn't come online for years, would do nothing to help Europe in the short term and would only line the pockets of fossil fuel executives and lock in reliance on risky, volatile fossil fuels decades to come. Amen. And as recent reports um, of record heat waves in Antarctica and, and the Arctic and the collapse of an Antarctic ice shelf that wasn't supposed to collapse, as they don't indicate it enough, that locking in more dependence on fossil fuels will be absolutely catastrophic. So in addition to her work at CommonDreams.org, Jessica has fact-checked or been published by outlets including In These Times, Rolling Stone, Salon, The Nation, and Vice. Her work primarily focuses on the intersections of politics, public health, and the environment, and she also explores human and civil rights, gender and sexuality, and peace and labor movements. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Oh, you know, and like I was saying to you before the show and over email is that, you know, I've been following your work for a bit, and I'm just always 
like just stunned at how much work you're putting out on a daily basis. I mean, just between between the last time you and I talked, I think you've published three or four different articles since last week. So um, kudos to that. Thank you. Yeah, we uh, we like to stay by the motto that news never stops. So <laughs> so neither do you. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Well, um, you know, just before we jump into your articles and stuff, I'm always curious, you know, about kind of what kind of led you in this direction for doing this kind of work, um, both at, say, Common Dreams, but, you know, covering kind of climate movements, activist movements um, as a whole. Yeah, well, I got started in journalism I think a lot younger. Sorry, that's my puppy. Um, <laughs> and we love puppies on the show. Isn't that right, everybody? Yes, we do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I started journalism a lot younger than I think a lot of my colleagues, just because I was very fortunate to have a public high school program that had been around for like 35 years by the time I got there. So it was a totally student-run publication. And um, between that and Model United Nations, you know, by the time I went into college, I had a pretty clear trajectory that I knew I wanted to do political reporting with a kind of international focus. Um, and it was really in college that the impact of human-caused global heating started to come more on my radar. You know, I had definitely heard reports about it, but growing up in the rural suburban Midwest, especially in um, the 90s and early 2000s, it wasn't something that I was exposed to really until uh, mm -hmm. I got a little older and, um, you know, the weight of that really hit me. And I'm just, I'm blown away by the, the young people, you know, like teenagers who are out in the streets these days and, you know, very aware and informed about these issues. You know, they know the, the numbers, they know the scientific reports in a way that I certainly didn't when I was 13, 14 years old. No, 100%. I mean, uh, I, I'm, you know, and I would just say, you know, thank the old gods, the news and the new ones for them. Right. I yeah. mean, because I mean, it was, uh, you know, again, you think about what we're facing just as a, you know, a global people. Um, I mean, you'd think that this would be something we'd start in like, you know, preschool. <laughs> right? Oh yeah. And I mean, I think you're seeing that even in the reports of like, you know, the, the young folks who are exposed to it are experiencing anxiety and there are all these like think pieces, like how to talk to your child in an age-appropriate way about climate catastrophe. And I think that's important. You know, you have to meet people where they are. But sure. I, I definitely recognize that, you know, we should be listening to the fears of the younger generations because they're the ones who are going to be alive for what we are creating right now. 100%. So, you know, I mean, right now, and one of the reasons I'm so glad you could come on the show tonight is because it's you, you look at what's happening right now after the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it, like literally we're in a situation where we're seeing the I mean, the knowable byproducts of this reliance on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Right. That we're seeing, you know, the kind of, to you know, use Malcolm X's famous phrase, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. And in the worst possible ways, we're seeing this. And your piece, you know, uh, Ukrainian blood on their hands, um, analysis details how big oil funded Putin's war chest really just kind of seemed to bring together, um, you know, this nexus where we see um, a real challenge to a global order. Right. Um, and the climate crisis being kind of served up right in front of us, basically saying, what are you going to do about this? So can you walk us through a little bit about some of those connections and what you're doing in that article and what you see as some of the, these key linkages here? Yeah, I think, you know, as absolutely horrific as Russia's war on Ukraine is, um, not only has it exposed the tensions in those in between those countries going back decades, but it's highlighted that the impact of fossil fuels isn't just on climate and on public health, but also on the human rights and on global conflict. And, you know, that's certainly something we've seen, especially with U.S. imperialism. But um, in this case, it it's more about how fossil fuels have funded the Russian government. You know, uh, oil and gas exports are so important to their economy that it's what has enabled them to wage war on Ukraine over the past month. And 
that's kind of what this report, which was from Greenpeace, USA, uh, Global Witness, and Oil Change International specifically targets. Um, and it, it looks at the, the eight companies in particular um, who have significant shares of um, Russian state-controlled oil and gas companies. There's uh, Rosneft and there's Gazprom, which are the two Russian government-controlled entities. But these eight companies, particularly BP, um, hold significant shares. And even though they, some of them have now said, like Shell and BP are like, hey, given all this, all, all of these human rights violations, we're going to divest. The damage in to some degree has already been done. You know, all this money has already been right. given to the Russian government over the past several years. So they like to just kind of like wash their hands of it and say, well, you know, it's not us. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, and I also find what's interesting about that, too, is that, you know, when you see a lot of coverage, it, the, the coverage that is there that talks about Russia being basically a, you know, a single, you know, a one trick pony when it comes to its economy. Right. Really, it's reliance upon oil and gas as, you know, the main driver of their economy, as, you know, the, the oligarchs and Putin has run the rest of the economy into the ground, relying solely on on fossil fuels. Um like the, the news often the main news news media often reports on that as kind of like Russia's oil, Russia's oil, as if all the rest of the world is not implicated in the the buildup right of the Russian Empire. And I found it really interesting to see you got, you know, walking through this report where you have these oil executives, fossil fuel executives that are basically saying, hey, it wasn't us. You know, we were just kind of there. You know, this was way in the past. You know, we're the, we're the good guys now. We're a UK company or, you know, we're a, a US company when really, you know, the blood really is on their hands, so to speak, when it comes to the, you know, funding the Russian government. Right. You know, it's been both holding shares in these companies and also joint ventures with Russian entities and um, overall, with just these eight companies, since the invasion of uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, uh, it was n over 95 billion dollars. Um, and you know, this is an estimate, and the the groups are very careful to say, you know, is based on their shares of these projects. Yep. But um, you know, unless these companies come out and say, oh, this is know precisely what we've given which is just not going to happen realistically it, it's a pretty solid example of how u.s and uk and other european fossil fuel companies have directly contributed to putin's ability to wage war on ukraine well and what i find fascinating about this report i think you know this is one thing i thought was like super smart about it is that it, you know it's really taking like you said from that period of russia's invasion of crimea kind of onward and basically saying okay what was the response to basically russia taking over territory from another country right and say well let's look at those at those profits let's take a peek at it right you've got this like nifty little chart here mm -hmm. right that uh kind of runs through um, all we're seeing and you know the you know you've got bp shell uh wintershall dia exxon Mobil, total energies equinor omv basically everyone um who are the major players in fossil fuels were profiting off of this stuff so, I mean, what did you make of, you know, the kind of denials that were coming from BP and these other companies? I mean, are they actually saying this stuff with a straight face? You know, I mean, I think they're trying to, and I think it is similar to what we see when they respond to things like the IPCC reports and mm -hmm. IEA. And when you, when you have all these global entities who are like, hey, you're part of the problem, you know, they, they like to be like, hey, we're going to be part of the solution. But we're not seeing that in terms of their actual plans for the next few decades, which are crucial to avoid the worst impacts of climate catastrophe, which is what scientists keep telling us, you know, they're right. very plain in their language at this point. I think, you know, to the credit of the global scientific community, they've gotten a lot better, especially with the past five years or so of saying, you know, these are the real impacts. We're seeing it right now in the worsening hurricanes and the wildfires and everything. But, um, yeah, in terms of how the fossil fuel companies responded, and some of them didn't um, even bother to challenge the findings, but those who did, including BP, you know, they just kind of denied the report, and that's what we've come to expect from them. Yeah, it's really remarkable seeing the, the kind of political strategy by some of these companies. And, you know, some of them, like you said, are just kind of like, 
I don't know if you guys have seen the amount of money that we've got in the bank, but we don't need to talk to you. We know that's what seems right. to be the strategy of those folks. But BP, so this, this is what I find is interesting. Here's a statement from, um, from BP. Um, it said from this briefing, it says, we, we included these values of all this money that they got um, to provide greater transparency and a full accounting um, of these companies' activities. Um, oh, I'm sorry, they're responding to the B. I'm sorry, the BP yeah. statement was this. Um, uh, calls out BP, the researchers. Oh, see, I'm just busy. Oh, we, we simply do not recognize the numbers you cite <laughs> or indeed any suggestion that BP was somehow responsible for paying Russia an estimated seven, uh, seven, $78.4 billion since 2014. And so they're just saying, like, we just don't believe your research. I mean, it sounds like you were, you're saying, okay, what are you guys? Fake news is basically what they're, they're trying to say here. Yeah, that's really what I took from it. And, you know, I think that the report, I don't know what the exchange was between the Global Witness researchers and BP's spokesperson, but um, at least in the report itself, it lays out very clearly how they got the estimated direct payments as well as the estimated payments from Russian companies based on the minority interests that these eight um, fossil fuel giants had in the Russian companies. So, you know, the, the chart you referenced in the article, it's, it's very straightforward, you know, <laughs> uh, as far as I could tell, like a grade school <laughs> kid could figure it out. So I don't know uh, why BP doesn't seem to recognize it as reality. No, exactly. We're talking like arithmetic here. We're right. not talking like you it's know advanced really quadratic equations. It's a simple chart of um, basic addition. So... Right, exactly. And I love the fact that, you know, um, this is uh, Murray Worthy, a uh, gas campaign leader for Global Witness, so that we wrote the report says, BP and other big energy companies are now trumpeting their withdrawals from Russia, but do they expect us to forget the almost $100 billion they're responsible for putting into Putin's pockets in recent years? And I think that's really the crux of, of kind of where we come out of it. I mean, on some level, I think they do, because, you know, a lot of folks, they may know that, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and um, you know, they may have some awareness of how it's affecting the gas prices in the United States or elsewhere, for example. But I think that, you know, outside of the environmental and progressive movements, uh, there n isn't necessarily a huge awareness of how oil and gas has a direct connection to this war. Um, and and I think on some level, the, the companies know that. And, you know, they, they make a lot of money and they just aren't under enough pressure to change their business model, which is wrecking the planet. 100%. As I, you know, I have to say, um, I, I, I read uh, Rachel Maddow's book a while ago, Blowout, um, and in just part because it was in the news. Mm -hmm. I, I, to be honest with you, when I picked it up, um, I was like, I wasn't expecting a whole lot out of it. Um, I was getting a little frustrated with the particular attack that MSNBC was taking on Russia, Russia, Russia all the time. Yeah. Um, for, but we could put that aside for another conversation. But what I was, what I found, it wasn't what I expected. And um, when I got into what, what she said in that book, she was basically documenting, right, um, the, the way that oil Right. And these fossil fuels are central to propping up like dictators like Putin. Oh, right? absolutely. Um, and it's just like, you know, and here we are, we're seeing the logical kind of like end game of what happens when um, we don't get off of fossil fuels. And now not only are we talking about like the jeopardy of like, like nations and God, I mean, the threat of freaking nuclear war again. Are you kidding me? Right. You know, I mean, but we're also talking about the future of the planet. Well, right. And, you know, and to your point, like the future of the planet on multiple fronts, like if it's not climate crisis over the next few decades, it could be um, nuclear war. And, you know, I think people have some legitimate fears, like my coworker Julia reported today that a majority of Americans are now fearful of nuclear weapons use after Russia's invasion. And, you know, I think that that's valid, especially when you look at the language that Putin used in his announcement of the invasion last month. Um, and, you know, I don't think that is as much as the Biden administration, to their credit, has taken a, a somewhat cautious approach since the invasion. You know, leading up to it, all the NATO rhetoric seemed to definitely, at least, encourage the the invasion of Ukraine and um, you know ratchet up tensions rather than reduce them. Um, and so, I think on some level, there's maybe been some awareness in Washington that. They should be a little bit more afraid. And over the last month, you've seen that with like the unwillingness to 
implement a no-fly zone. Um, because, I, you know, I think that you see a lot of peace activists saying doing so is a direct provocation of nuclear war. And I, I don't think that that's hyperbolic. No, I don't, especially when you start hearing language like, you know, mini nukes or tactical nukes, <laughs> right. um, which is just like a way of trying to make it OK. <laughs> Right. Right. Well, and especially like, you know, as the only country that has used nuclear weapons, I think Americans in particular should be conscious of the kind of damage that they can do, particularly in 2022. 100%. I mean, yeah, perfect. See, even, even your dog in, like agrees yes. with this. Well, that? Billy is only seven months and she agrees. <laughs> <laughs> like a sweet every once in a while i get to see like see the nose they come like the sweetest i love little pups um so so that brings us kind of like in terms of like where we're going for here and the second article like like literally i think you you published it either later that day or the next day um where and i think this is a a legitimate concern is like now that we know that europe is you know has been tied into russia oil and gas particularly natural gas um and by cutting off those pipelines or by kind of like putting sanctions on Russia when it comes to it's uh, um, just putting sanctions on Russia mm -hmm. is jeopardizing their energy supply. Right. Um, and again, we could, you know, to we're blue in the face, we could say, yeah, you know what, if we dealt with this 20 years ago, this wouldn't be a problem. But that posed a serious challenge, both in terms of what was happening in terms, you know, the, the NATO alliance, if you will, but more importantly, over the long term, um, what is going to happen and what's going to happen with uh, with our fossil fuels are we going to use this as an opportunity then to say yep let's double down on renewables let's double down and make sure that um we can do a kind of almost like a marshall plan for green energy in europe to ensure that they, we cut russia off but instead we see this other tact right there was initial reports that you know as you document in your piece that um the biden administration was just gonna say hey let's all double down on natural gas so walk us through a little bit of what happened like literally the day after when he was giving his nato um remarks yeah well what's so frustrating is you know when biden announced the uh ban on russian oil coming to the united states in early march he recognized, you know, hey, we need to double down on a clean energy future. Um, and he even recognized the connection between fossil fuels and the conflict um, in terms of funding the Russian government. And then you have him last week joined with the European Commission announcing uh, an effort to ramp up liquefied natural gas exports from the United States to Europe. And... On some level, you know, the, the instinct is understandable. You've got right. Europeans who need to be able to run their businesses and run their homes. Um, but this is exactly why, not only in terms of a climate perspective, but in terms of a resilience perspective, we have seen environmentalists saying for decades we need to have more sustainable systems when it comes to energy, when it comes to transportation, etc. Um, and so what the EU and the US announced last week was an effort to ship 50 billion cubic meters of LNG to Europe annually through 2030. And you know, 2030 is a pretty significant number, uh, year in terms of when um, climate scientists say, you know, we need to shift to renewable energy sources. Um, and so I think that's sparked a lot of very understandable concern, especially because it's going to require building out the U.S. capacity to produce more gas. And that impacts not only the planet, but also these Gulf Coast communities that are going to host these export facilities. And there's resistance there, too. So as much as Biden might want to help the Europeans get off of Russian gas and Russian oil, he's not only impacting the planet with this plan, he's also impacting his constituents in Louisiana and Texas. Totally. So does this look like this is a done deal, that this is the policy that they're going with at this point? You know, it seems pretty set. Um, I, mm -hmm. I do think that there is uh, an understanding within the administration that, you know, they have made some climate commitments that they certainly have not been able to deliver on in Congress with 
um, mansion and cinema blocking the Build Back Better legislation, which is pretty much the only climate action that (laughs) they've tried to pass so far. So, um, you know, I think there's there's an awareness within the administration that they need to act on climate, but this really flies in the face of that. And, you know, that's what experts are saying. That's what activists are saying. And it is just very straightforwardly accurate. Um, So I would like to see other action, maybe simultaneously that, um, you know, if they ramped up heat pumps, for example, production of heat pumps, for example, then exported those to Europe, had them installed, we wouldn't necessarily need to rely on oil and gas in the same way. So, right. And from my, my understanding from your piece, like that seems to be the most direct line, right, to like where that could be to ramp up production on that would be, you know, would take like a week or something. Right. It wouldn't you know, there's not like building out an entire pipeline infrastructure and kind of delivery mechanism and a, a reopening closed fracking wells. But rather, you know, ramping up that, that heat pump production would have a I mean, I'm not saying it's I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating when I'm saying like a week, but I mean, it would be a much shorter time period to actually deliver real assistance for kind of energy costs in Europe at this point. Yeah. And if you look at like insulating homes and shifting to wind and solar energy, I mean, not only is that going to help in the short term, it's going to help in the long term. And I think, you know, we need to have kind of a dual approach when we're dealing with this kind of problem. Like, yeah, it's an immediate crisis, but it's also a long term crisis and we can't ignore the long term, uh, which, you know, has been our approach to climate policy for decades. Right. And like, and again, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm saying this, I'm not necessarily asking you to go here with me, but I mean, this is one of the things that I think I find consistently frustrating about the way that Democrats do politics, to be honest with you, is like, and what I mean by that is this is like, this is an opportunity to really put the screws into Republicans and saying, wait, are you telling us that you are going to support Vladimir Putin's kind of like, like virtual genocide of Ukrainians by feeding him gas, as opposed to supporting this bill that would allow for us to cut him off once and forever? I mean, even if they're not going to get the votes on that in the, in the long run, right? Because of, like you said, mansion and cinema, and they're pretty much locked in. And I'm sure Manchin's going to be throwing a, fissy, a hissy fit for about a week now since there was a big piece in the, like, the New York Times basically documenting his like love of coal and how he got rich off it. But anyways, but it seems to me is like the instinct, which is problematic, which and again, I'm not this, I'm not putting this all on Biden's lap here. This is the choices that we've made in this country over the past several decades. But right before he went to Europe. Right. And this is kind of you write in this piece where, you know, say Biden's trip to Europe follows a closed door meeting at the White House Monday. This is last Monday with 16 top executives, including CEOs of Bank of America, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, J.P. Morgan Chase and Marathon Petroleum and Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. Like Jamie Dimon is like. (laughs) If we're playing Dungeons and Dragons right now, he would be like from the underworld, right? You know, what I mean? he'd be like, we have to summon him from another plane, you know. So Jamie Dallin advocated for creating a quote Marshall Plan to develop more domestic gas and other energy resources, telling the president and his aides that additional gas production is needed for both Europe and America's energy security. That just, I'm like, what in God's name are you doing, thinking about? inviting these are your, your okay i'm about to go to europe let's bring in all the, the fossil fuel folks in um the consultant as opposed to like where were all the green energy people in that meeting you know what i'm saying well right and i mean the fact that the white house is holding this kind of meeting shows exactly who's got their ear and you know we've reported at common dreams before on specifically how jp morgan chase has funded the fossil fuel industry more so than any other major bank in the world um, and, you know, even they have made some some strides, some small strides in recent years under immense activist pressure. Um, but, yeah, back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, these big oil and big bank CEOs, they know that they're not necessarily accountable um, to too many people. And so they're going to push for what is going to make them richer and what they envision as an ideal world and in a lot of ways that takes advantage of these frontline communities in Louisiana and Texas who, you know, already see sci high cancer rates and other health issues as a result of the industry in their area. 
Well, I think, you know, right here in Pennsylvania, I mean, we had our big fracking boom, right, um, kind of a while back. And because, the you know, the prices tanked, right, so they capped a bunch of wells and everything slowed down again. But no one will touch it. Like, even like all the, you know, what will go moderate Democrats in the state are always worried about their election chances. So they're not coming out hard against the, you know, um, the, the natural gas industry. And we know that, okay, look, uh, if this, there are people, there are forces within our own state politics, I'm sure, that are looking at that plan to boost uh, kind of LNG exports to um, Europe as a pure, you know, profit-taking opportunity um, in their mind. So saying like, hey, let's start lobbying our own state legislators, right, to basically make sure that we don't lose out on the windfall profits that are going to come from this war. I mean, as disgusting as that sounds, you know, I think that's happening. Well, yeah, and how many of those politicians are, you know, personally set to gain from the fracking industry or getting campaign money from those folks? 100%. 100 percent and it seems that you know you're getting well we're getting to see some of those folks in the spotlight um (laughs) coming out and like we're here to help ukraine Mm -hmm. and you know ukraine is now a another word to use for my wallet right right which is completely egregious when you've got you know russia bombing theaters and hospitals uh and you know mass droves of people fleeing what was a sovereign country (laughs) 100%. 100%. I mean, it's, uh, and it's, and it's, we don't seem to be able to move on anything um, here. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I don't know. Do you see, are you seeing at this point any significant pushback? Um, I mean, I know in your piece, you talked about some of the groups that are actually really putting pressure on the Biden administration to actually use this as an opportunity, you know, to double down on green energy to make sure you make the transition. Um, does it seem like, the White House is listening at all, or is it really fossil fuel? You know, we did see some reporting, I believe it was in the Washington Post a couple weeks ago, that the heat pumps um, option was something that was at least being considered in the White House. And uh, there has been some reporting that, you know, they're kind of considering all options on the table. And so I think that there, as long as it continues to be part of the conversation, um, and activists and progressive policymakers in Washington continue to push the Biden administration on this and continue to remind them of the climate promises that they made leading up to the 2020 election. Um, there's a lot of potential to at least see a, a both option, which is not ideal, but is better than just strictly building out these, um, you know, these gap, this gas infrastructure. And, you know, unfortunately, we, like, uh, last week we saw FERC, the federal oh god, yeah, the federal um, energy uh, regulator walk back its climate pledges. You know they had some cli- climate guidelines they rolled out last month, um, and they were going to actually consider the environmental justice and the climate impacts of gas pipelines. Uh, and suddenly they're like, nope, just kidding. We're not going to do that. This is a draft order now. It will not that apply. Was a joke. Oh, and, and by the way, let's approve some uh, some permits while we're at it. And, you know, uh, Sierra Club and a couple other organizations were like, excuse me? Uh, because, you know, it was, it was seen as a low bar and the agency was finally meeting that low bar that even the federal courts were like, hey, this is your job. One hundred percent. Look, I'm so glad you brought that. Like, I was trying to be disciplined tonight, right, by saying not not like talking about every single piece that you wrote last week, right? But that FERC piece, it had my blood boiling. Oh yeah. I mean that. I mean for. I mean, there's a lot of folks who will listen to the show. I've been following Raging Chicken for a while, who who have basically been, you know, active in campaigning against, you know, the fracking industry and fossil fuel stuff. And here, that's actually one of when we first got started, we we launched our our kind of primarily our kind of online journalism site that was way back in 20, 2011. And that's when the gas, you know, fracking boom was starting to really kick off here in Pennsylvania. It was one of our first areas of coverage. Yeah. And so I know a lot of folks who have been with us since then are, have been following this and FERC is you know, like, you know, language that is just shared one mm-hmm. in this space. And to see, I mean, that was a moment when it looked like, Hey, this is actually real progress considering like the fossil fuel emissions, the impacts in kind of like how we're kind of determining cost of stuff. And to see that just kind of like, I, as a side note, 
just kind of being saying, oh, we're joking, what, that blew my mind. Yeah, well, and you know, they, they rolled it out and there was significant pushback from the industry and from some folks in Congress, particularly Manchin, as well as yep. some predictable Republicans, including um, Senator Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And, you know, that, that's where you expect that them to come down on this issue. But the fact that it was successful is what's so alarming, especially because it was such a low bar, you know, that is in terms of what they what FERC is supposed to do. This should have been part of their evaluations years ago. Well, and let's be clear, like this is FERC what this is not le new legislation, right? No. This is like this is just the this is solely within the administrative purview Right. Of the Biden administration to basically kind of determine the kind of directions of how we go about and, you know, um, lay out the order of the business of this agency. Right. So there was there was no need to act on this. Right. Biden could very much and his administration could very say, OK, look, I hear you, Exxon. I hear you, Mobile. I hear you, Joe Manchin. But you know what? You just sank my bill. Right. That was going to solve a big problem. So, you know what? You can just take your little, you know, your little whiny tears Right. And you could go just, you know, you know, cry in your billionaire's mug. Well, you go and do that. And then we're just going to move ahead with this. And I dare you to come out and try to say that we're going to not do this because he, they could have really fought on that. That's what blew my mind is like there was no need to act and no need to roll that back other than there's influence that is is being, you know, finally being seen now in the, in the Biden administration. Yeah, and I think it was one of the Sierra Club representatives who pointed out, you know, based on how these legal battles have been playing out in the federal court system, it was a very simple, expected step for FERC to move forward and say, okay, we're going to consider this. But I do think that, you know, it does kind of also link back to Ukraine and the impact that the, the oil and gas industry um, is having on on politics right now as a result of the pressure uh, on the Biden administration from this conflict. Absolutely. I see these as intimately linked. I see the, the rollback on a, a, a very, again, let's be clear, this wasn't a radical move by FERC, no. right? But it was certainly a step in a positive direction toward climate action. The one that they just did, obviously, is a very negative <laughs> reaction, right? right? But, you know, it, it's like there's the fact that you have an industry that's able to have windfall profits and help fund the buildup of dictatorships around around the world. And let's be clear, it's not just Putin. Right. right? Um, I mean, we're in bed with a bunch of them kind of in other areas. And then to find out that the same industries, right, that are profiting off this kind of globally are the ones that are kind of pushing back on kind of common sense legislation here in this country. And it seems to me that we have to be able to think systemically on this one um, and really see as part of the target of what's happening in Ukraine is the kind of the end to the reliance upon these companies um, and the refusal for them to have them dictate our politics. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it also underscores why we can't necessarily trust them to be a key part of the solution because ExxonMobil or Shell or BP controlling all of the wind and solar just leads to the same kind of behavior, you know, maybe a, a greener, cleaner planet. Um, but based on how these companies have acted for their entire existence, you know, can we trust them with human rights violations and with their partnerships with world leaders? Absolutely not. Right. Exactly. So I think that I mean, I don't know if you see it in this way, but the other piece that um, that you were working on that I wanted to, to at least make sure you know, I'm looking at my time. I'm sure I want to make sure we squeeze this one in. Yeah. So it seemed to me that, you know, you've got this piece that um, you got this act that just came out, um, the windfalls profit tax that uh, say which Bernie Sanders, Ed Markey and Jamal Bowman um, introduced that you were uh, kind of reporting on. That seems to be also well timed in this fight. Um, it's basically coming out and basically saying, uh-uh, we are, we are going to kind of draw a line in the sand here. So walk, walk us through a little bit what this proposal is and, and how it was launched. Because, you know, this, for me, the aggressiveness that this came out with and the kind of, you know, we're not going to pull any punches on what we're doing here. That was one of the most encouraging parts about this, even though we know that it's the possibility of this passing through Joe Manchin's like, you know, grimy little pause is very slim. Um, but nonetheless, it's politics and fighting back and laying down, you know, some ground about what we should be fighting for. Yeah. So I think what really struck me was the fact that 
as bold as this proposal is, it's not in any way unprecedented. And I think that, um, you know, the three members of Congress who rolled it out did a good job of pointing that out, you know, in previous times of conflict, including World War II, we have had these kind of taxes. This tax in particular, there would uh, be a 95% tax on the windfall profits of major companies. So what they would do is they'd take a look at the average profit level of these companies from 2015 to 2019 pre-pandemic, and they'd say, okay, on top of the 21% federal income tax, which was cut from 35% under Donald Trump, um, there's going to be a tax on the company's profits that exceed that average for those five years. And, you know, any kind of like legitimate gains in terms of what they're doing wouldn't necessarily factor into it, but it's a way to crack down on the price gouging that we've seen in the oil and gas industry, for example, but that's not it. It's also in, you know, grocery stores and right. a whole a whole bunch of other industries like big tech, big pharma, um, food and retail, housing, like it's across the board. And, um, you know, they estimate that it's going to be, it would be hundreds of millions of dollars um, generated from this tax, uh, which is, you know, sorely needed right now. We can't, and now we can't even get COVID funding passed through Congress. Exactly. But, um, you know, people are suffering and, you know, they're, they're making that clear to their members of Congress. And so I think that this is, um, you know, this is Markey and, Sanders and Bowman really saying, you know, we understand that people in this country also need help and that, um, you know, they really do. The polling shows that across the board in terms of political spectrum, the American public does understand that this price gouging from all these powerful companies is driving inflation, is driving the price yes. hikes. So they, they want something done about it. And I think that that is also valuable, you know. I think that it's something that maybe could get a couple Republican sponsors. You know, the folks who are against big tech or big pharma, there, there are a few of them, you know, they're, they're a little off the wall on every other issue, but they care about this. Um, and, you know, the fact that it, it's been done, you know, during the Korean War, during World War One, World War Two, right. and that's where that 95% comes from. Um, the tax rate reached as high as 95% during World War Two. Uh, so they're, they're really looking at history and saying, okay, how have we dealt with this problem before? Um, and how do we discourage this kind of this kind of corporate greed uh, going forward? And I think that in that sense, it's, it's a really smart approach because they, we have the evidence that it works. 100%. And I think that, look, I mean, I look at this too as super smart for like as a political strategy too as well leading into the midterms because you know i look at the, you know i think back there was this book by this uh woman her name i believe uh, maury star um it's called naming the enemy um and it kind of came out right kind of in the kind of the the flurry of kind of books reporting that came out through the global justice movement the aftermath of seattle and so on mm -hmm. and one of the things that she made the case for is looking at the history of social movements of how critical it is to name the enemy right and not pretend to like hey we're all just gonna get but you the reason why because you know it's it's an answer to the question, like, why are the prices rising at the gas pump? Why are my food costs going up? Why is it that I don't seem to be able to pay, pay my bills? Who is responsible? And the Republicans are masters at basically saying, like, well, it's Joe Biden, obviously, you know, or, you know, or it's CRT or it's those damn masks that clouded your brain and took your money away. You know, whatever the hell they're going to say, they're going to use those conspiracy theories as a way of kind of driving out like who their enemy is to, to get people organized. What this does is it it concentrates like who the targets are. So even if you can't get those like, you know, unicorn Republicans that are supposedly out there. Right. Um, even if we can't get those, what it does is it, it, it boosts those races that people are making the case that corporations should not be allowed to profit off misery, whether we're talking about the like 
the, the thousands and thousands of people being slaughtered in Ukraine right now, or we're talking about the people that are in, in this country who just had their child tax credit ripped away, that basically had any support for COVID ripped away, and for the, the kind of, um, you know, the people of color who disproportionately took it on the chin during COVID and then were thrown out, you know, basically thrown out the pasture, basically. I mean, all those things were going on, and this seems to me to lay down some really strong lines for by which we can fight um, and lead into, um, you know, the midterm elections. And those it seems to me that in those races where you have progressives running, um, they could actually run on this message. And then you get a certain kind of unified message. It's not just, you know, a race that's happening in the backyard, but it's a national push. So I'm, I'm again and diatribe here. But, you know, it seems to me is like that was the other thing when I was so encouraged kind of reading this piece um, that, that you put out kind of doing that kind of analysis and seeing how strong they came out with it. I mean, do you get the sense that they, uh, you know, again, put the passage thing to the side. But do you think that um, that, say, Bowman and um, and Sanders and Markey see it in this way, like as a way to kind of rally, rally around, um, you know, a kind of a target and a, a direction? Yeah, I think I do. And, you know, Bowman's the only one as a member of the House versus the Senate that's up for election this year. Um, but I think that they're all very conscious of the impact that progressive proposals can have on the elections. You know, we saw in the last cycle that the the size of the squad doubled. You know, we had more progressives. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not a huge group of people, but it is a notable shift in terms of who we have as representatives in Congress. Um, and, you know, this is very much in line with both of Sanders' presidential runs. See, this is right. the same song and dance he's been singing for decades, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it's finally having an impact, I think, in terms of federal politics. You know, it it's a big deal that he's the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. And, yeah. you know, putting out a proposal like this in that very powerful position, whether or not it's recognized in, you know, the day-to-day um, mainstream press is is significant and i think it's them putting down a marker and saying you know this is what we want and and, you know this is not just what progressives want this is what the majority of americans want when you have polling that shows over 70 percent of republicans understand that the price gouging for the oil and gas industry is what's jacking up gas prices that that's a huge deal like this is what folks want across the board regardless of who they're voting for yeah, and it's one of, in my mind, it's one of the best retorts to like, you know, like the inflation, like the inflation argument. What was inflation? It's like, yeah, that's right, because these people are price gouging and these people are like, you put, I mean, you know, I've always been of the school that you got to put the opposition on its heels, right? You can't, you know, especially when it's demonstrated complete bad faith in any kind of negotiation. It's, you know, you don't sit there and, and constantly hold out the hand and hoping that eventually they're going to come and take the nut. You got to actually fight, you know, and I think this is a, a great opportunity opportunity to see this so crazy yeah and then i think that's why this kind of proposal has the potential to gain wide widespread support from the american public regardless of whether it advances or not because um you know whatever your party registration is you're feeling it at the gas pump and you're feeling it at the grocery store uh when the prices are soaring in this kind of economy 100 percent. Well, listen, um, so I, I think before I let you go, I've got to ask you, say, you know, so what are some of the things that you're keeping eyes on here or where do you think people should go to be, say, checking out, especially when we're looking at these intersections between, say, climate and policy and then what we're seeing like, happening over there with the Russian invasion, Ukraine, where are some kind of directions that you could send them? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, at Common Dreams, we're following these trends on a daily basis. You know, most of our reporting decisions um, in terms of specific stories are made day to day, even though we are looking for, you know, trends or what are climate activists and climate scientists and peace activists saying about these types of issues. Um, you know, we try and follow the, um, the reporters, the independent press that exist um, in Russia and in Ukraine. You know, unfortunately in Russia, you're seeing a crackdown um, on, on the press, but uh, the the journalists who are still there and um, are standing up against this 
this brutal crackdown uh, is it's important, you know, and um, I will say, like, I also pay attention to other folks in the U.S. who are reporting on these issues, uh, like Kate Aronoff at the uh, the New Republic, yeah. for example, her, her reporting is excellent. Um, you know, there's even like at, you know, at major newspapers like the Post and the Times, you know, some of their climate reporting is really excellent. And even if they're not necessarily elevating progressive voices, um, they are documenting the effects of the climate emergency in a way that I think is really valuable. And, um, you know, at Common Dreams, what we can do is we can we can infuse our reporting with what are these movements saying and uh, really hone in on those voices. Um, so I, I think that, you know, as, as infuriating as uh, <laughs> some of the more mainstream coverage can be sometimes, you know, particularly for me, what gets under my skin is the, a lot of the TV news. Um, yeah. Oh God. There, there is important lesson. There are there are important lessons to be taken from from what they're doing day to day. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't, you know, like one of the reasons one of our kind of uh, uh, hobby horses around here is talking about, you know, the absolute need to support kind of independent progressive media and Common Dreams has been around for quite some time. Um, and like we were saying before the show, um, you know. I can remember back early on in Common Dreams time being it that was just kind of like the lifeblood. It's like a nonprofit newsroom that was kind of aggregating and doing and now doing kind of like original reporting and kind of following this and having a, a newsroom that has been sustainable for what you said, like 25 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, what's nice about our our um, coverage is that all of our news stories are Creative Commons licensed. So. A lot of it gets republished by Salon or Truthout or LA Progressive. You know, a lot of all these independent outlets are um, also supporting us, you know, not necessarily financially, but um, with circulating our content. And so I, I have great appreciation when I see my pieces reposted by these other outlets because to, to me and I think to, to our entire team, you know, the point is the message. It's it's not about making yes. money. You know, we're we're fully reader supported. We don't do any advertisements. Um, so it's it's really about getting this information to as many people as possible. Um, which is one of the things that drew me to Common Dreams. You know, I've been here since the middle of 2017, um, and before that, jumped around. You know, various uh, places, mostly magazines. So uh, shifting to news was uh, an adjustment for me. But what I really was blown away by even before I joined the team was how much they value the the information and the, the message over any kind of um, profit or um, you know uh, ulterior motives in, in terms of like getting clicks. <laughs> One hundred percent. We'll definitely check them out. That's commondreams.org. And of course, you can check out um, the articles that we talked about tonight. Um, we're going to link those in today's show notes. If you're on YouTube, you're already going to see them down in there. And, uh, you know, Jessica, I hope like down the road we can have you back. Um, I love talking to you and I love your reporting. Um, please do check her out. Um, give her a shout out, share her work and uh, really support the work they're doing over there at commondreams.org. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, Jessica. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, this has been great. All right, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. It is that time again. Um, look, everybody, uh, take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Uh, stay in the struggle. Let's build a sustainable one. Shout it out. Share. Amplify. You know the deal. See ya!